following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. arrived at Arcanum 11, Persuasion, which is a profound study of the nature of alchemy, but also the psychological state of serenity. Samuel and Vior wrote in the Revolution of the Dialectic that kindness is a much more crushing force than anger. People typically want to resolve their problems with mental exertion or when working with other people through coercion. To coerce means to seek verification of one's own ideas, one's mentality within another person by forcing them with our mind, with our ways of thinking to get them to think as we do. Coercion is a form of violence in the mental plane in which our ego battles the egos of others to get them to do what we want, what we desire, what we crave. You can see that human beings in these times really need to understand what is persuasion. To persuade means to respect the will of others, consciously, to offer solutions that are of benefit to humanity by teaching them the doctrine, by offering solutions by example. We respect the will of other people. We may offer this knowledge to transform them, to help, but with respect of their will, that they may do with it as they please, without forcing our own mind on the other person. And this is precisely the great problem that has infected religion. Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, Sufism, and even in the Gnostic movement, established originally by Samael and Vior. People deify the intellect. They want to verify everything with the mind. 
and to impose their way of thinking on the external world. Precisely ignoring that people are living within their own mental universe, their own thoughts, their own feelings, their own ways of acting. And so people usually get into arguments or debates. People have schools, philosophy clubs, these types of institutions which people take a position and they argue back and forth, presenting a thesis, countering an antithesis, usually with the sole purpose of deifying one's own intellect, one's pride, which is why Samael and Vior wrote in the book The Major Mysteries, discussions and polemics have ruined many spiritual schools. When two individuals argue, what they have is pride and arrogance in their mind. Both want to demonstrate their boasted superiority to one another. Both have Satan enthroned in their mind. So what is Satan? We said before, shaitan means the adversary, the ego. Not the ego of the other person, but our own defects, our own desires. We must always respectfully express our concept and allow our listener the freedom to accept or reject our concept. Everybody is free to think as they please, and we cannot exercise power over our neighbor's mind, because that would be black magic. Intellectual discussion is luciferic and demonic. So this is the distinction between an angel and a demon. An angel teaches, professes the knowledge, offers solutions. And in the dream state, we may invoke the masters of the White Lodge, Samael and Vior, and he may appear to you and offer you certain symbols, experiences, and living dramas in that dimension to show you what you need to work on. Precisely, this is something I've engaged with for uh, many years, invoking Samael and Vior to ask him for his advice. He has never forced his will on me because, of course, that would be demonic. Instead, he offers solutions. Here is the problem you are facing in your daily life. Here's the solution. And, of course, this is all enwrapped, enmeshed in symbols, symbolic experiences. Angels know how to persuade because they offer insight into the very root nature of our deepest problems and give us a way out. Show us. They seek to persuade, to offer a suggestion, accepting our will that we may do with it as we please. But a demon is different. An ego or an egoic being wants to force the other person to do as it pleases. Is the Distinction between the two. Therefore, this arcanum of persuasion teaches us from what basis do we offer persuasion, conscious judgment, sacrifice for others. And better said, this is the arcanum that precludes arcanum 12, which is the apostle. Because without persuasion, without that skill developed, one cannot be of service to the divine, to the being, to God. So let us look at this actual glyph of this tarot card.
In the waters of the card, we see a cubic stone with a long-legged creature, symbolic or with the appearance of a serpent with four legs and the dove of the Holy Spirit above it. We see a beautiful woman crowned with the sacred sign of the infinite. This woman has a serpent raised on her forehead, indicating that she's a master. She has raised the serpent Kundalini up the seven bodies of the tree of life, the seven lower sephirot of that diagram. Notice that she is closing the jaws of a terrifying lion, a terrifying being, with serenity. The words that Samael and Bayor uses in his books on the Tarot is Olympic serenity, or Olympian serenity. From Olympus, which is the mountain in which the Greek gods, the Roman gods, dwell. It is the mountain of initiation. And to have experiences in the astral plane in which you ascend a mountain indicates that you are entering initiation. And once climbing within those heights, one experiences the serenity and bliss of that perspective. To be able to see from the heights of divine perception down into all the dimensions of the cosmos, of the tree of life, and even the inferno. When one reaches those heights, one develops serenity, peace. And as we've explained in our courses on meditation, comprehension unfolds spontaneously when the mind is serene and when we develop insight. Serenity is simply a mind that is stable, that is not distracted with negative elements of anger, greed, lust, pride, etc., this woman represents our Divine Mother, the Divine Feminine, our inner Goddess. Since if we combine the number, the digits of the number 11, 1 plus 1 equals 2, which is the High Priestess of the Tarot. And the fact that she has part of her body visible, showing her naked breasts, indicates that she is wisdom. As we saw in Arcanum 2, the High Priestess has her breasts visible to indicate her wisdom, the milk and nourishment of the consciousness which feeds the soul, which are experiences, wisdom, astral projections, insights, etc. She is the one who feeds us with the milk of knowledge. Again, a symbol of the substance of the semen, the transmuted sexual energy. And is that power of the Divine Mother, the occult science, which helps us to have a mind like a child. As Samael and Vera wrote, again, in the Major Mysteries, we need to have the mind of a child in order to enter into the Major Mysteries, which the Major Mysteries pertains to raising the sacred fire of Kundalini, up the spine of each of the seven bodies, seven initiations of fire. We need to be like children in our minds and hearts. We need to be perfect as our Father who is in heaven is perfect. 
The great mysteries are not achievable through vain intellectualisms. The major mysteries are achievable with the heart of a child. We have known great masters of the White Lodge who are totally illiterate. This is not to say that the intellect is not useful. I believe there is a saying in the Muslim tradition that the Prophet Muhammad said that Allah loves especially, or the Sufis state that Allah loves especially the young and spiritual scholar, someone who combines their intellectual knowledge with experience, with wisdom, who takes the intellect and uses it at the service of God, of the divine. So this woman is precisely the divine feminine, a female master, our inner goddess, who closes the laws of a raging lion with Olympian serenity. And that lion has many representations in different traditions, especially Judeo-Christianity and even Sufism, Islam. That lion is the fires of Christ, the Christic energy, the divine flame, which resides within our sexual glands. It is the fire of Jehuda, Judah, which is yod Vav Dalet Hey, which contains the sacred name of God, Yod Chava, Yod Hey Vav Hey Jehovah, along with the Hebrew letter Dalet, of which we explained. Dalet is the letter associated with Da'at, alchemy, transmutation. So here we visually see how love is a much more crushing force than anger. That lion, which is the fires or energies of our sexual glands, can be controlled can be tamed, can be harnessed with gentleness, with serenity, with insight. That lion is precisely an energy which in us tends to be uncontrolled, out of balance, disharmonious. And as we begin the exercise for this lecture, we were performing the runes. And with the runes, we are learning to circulate the energies of the Lion of Judah from the atmosphere and our sexual glands throughout our body to circulate them. We do so precisely through serenity, through insight, through being relaxed as a consciousness, as a body. Notice that in Arcanum 11, we have two unities. The number one repeated twice a representation of the masculine and the feminine, male-female, husband and wife. And while individuals can learn to transmute the energies of their sexual glands with runes, pranayama, transmutation, the lion is fully controlled and harnessed in a matrimony, in a marriage. So we began discussing how serenity, persuasion, is the act of professing a type of knowledge, a wisdom, while respecting the will of others, the will of our neighbor. We express serenity and love towards the aggressor, towards those who are negative. This is a dynamic intimately studied within this arcanum. 
we learn to overcome difficult situations, ordeals, sufferings, by learning to use these energies wisely. To express our concept, our understanding, with respect, with serenity, with peace. Because we may have a situation at work, with family, with our spouse, in which they come to us as a raging lion, filled with anger, filled with resentment, and their ego is attacking us very profoundly. It's easy in those moments to become very defensive, agitated, coercive, where we want to express our hurt self-esteem, our pride, our anger, and retaliation. And of course, we know from experience, this perpetuates the cycle, the argument, the anguish, the pain. But persuasion is precisely by working with the feminine energies of God, the sexual energy. We develop virtue, patience, purity. And in those moments, we train our mind in meditation so that when we are opposed by someone who is aggressive, with serene mind, we speak words of calm, kindness, peace. And that aggressor, that person who was angry with us, like a lion, becomes tame. Just as the woman closes the jaws of that animal, that beast, with perfect concentration, with perfect faith. If we are coercive in the sense that we react negatively towards the impressions of life, if we do not learn to receive the impressions of our fellow men with gladness, but instead with resentment, then the lion of the law of karma devours us. So, as I said, the lion has many symbols, many meanings. This lion, as we explained in Arcanum 5, is the law of katansia, the superior law of karma, cause and effect. We said the wolf represents the law of karma that applies to all beings. But the lion also refers to the law of causality within the higher dimensions amongst the gods, amongst the initiates, the masters. Samael and Vayar also mentioned that the lion of the law is fought with the scale, with good deeds, with patience, with serenity. A symbol of how those superior forces of nature, the divine, is against us, meaning against our ego, if we do not learn to change fundamentally psychologically. So in order to overcome the difficult circumstances of life, the negative influences of nature, but also to know how to control the creative energy, we must be serene. Serenity, insight, comprehension. These are the fundamental aspects of meditation. As I said, this is an alchemical card. It is very profound, teaching how through the harmony between man and woman, the two unities, male-female, we work with the number two, our occult science, the high priestess. The number 11 also is interesting because it is the most multiplicable number, referring to how the unity of man and woman is Genesis creation, 
generation. One thing we will bear in mind, or should bear in mind, is that in order to control that lion-like power within the sexual act requires tremendous training in meditation and serenity, patience. Because in the beginning, couples who are learning to transmute their sexual energy have a lot of passion, a lot of fire. That Lion of Judah is powerful. It is transformative if we are serene. If in the sexual act itself, we learn to treat our partner with divine love, with purity, with chastity. Many people think that fornication simply has to do with the orgasm. But the real meaning is much more profound. It is more profound because lust does not exclusively limit itself to the body, but to the mind. Especially as disciples of this teaching, many beginners realize when they restrain the physical energy itself, discover how the mind and the heart are filled with lust where we may walk down the street in the cities and we see the opposite sex and certain lustful elements emerge that desire to look, to stare, to ogle. And Jesus of Nazareth specifically taught us that verily you have heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But if you look with lust at another person, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So lust is not only just physical, but mental, emotional. But of course, that struggle becomes more intense when the impressions are much more powerful. When a husband and wife unite or practicing alchemy, they should learn to approach that union with serenity, with insight. It means that people who are practicing alchemy should be training in meditation daily so that with a serene mind one is not disturbed by lust because in the beginning practitioners will always face that problem it is impossible for a beginner to practice alchemy as an angel does so we are not angels we are filled with many defects many desires so one should not be discouraged if one is married and one realizes that there's this tremendous lion with its jaws aiming to devour us in the sexual act that pushes a one to want to expel the energy, but also to waste the energy through lustful thoughts and lustful emotions. The way that you overcome that tremendous, powerful lion of the sexual force is being serene, concentrated. That force is controlled when we are responding to our partner with love with consciousness. Not moving too much because movement when the sexual glands are united, the sexual organs are united, produces a lot of fire. And the couple should only really stimulate enough fire that is controllable because too much movement leads to seminal emission. But the couple should move if they feel that they still have the energy available and yet for the man... The husband is losing his erection or the woman 
feels less humid. So a little movement is good when it's controlled to stimulate fire. Because when the organs touch, you have the spark. That's the symbol of the cross, the cross of Jesus. And that is how we crucify our mind, crucify our desires. So in the sexual act and in meditation, lustful desires and thoughts are transmuted into comprehension, understanding. But if we identify with the lion, if we become afraid of our own desires, we will be swallowed by it. But this is why the Master Samael and Vior gave us many mantras to pronounce with one's partner or in silence in the mind to stimulate the energies and to control that lion so that through that perfect concentration and control one is closing the jaws of that animal with serenity. So there are levels of application in this arcanum. I mentioned that it can refer to people who are confrontational with us who are negative who are angry who are violent. Persuasion is the act of peace. And for those who have trained in some forms of martial arts like Aikido, Japanese form of self-defense, one learns from those traditions that in order to defend yourself from an aggressor, you have to be perfectly calm. Someone attacks you, don't identify. Don't get fearful or angry. And the beautiful teaching of Aikido is you learn to take the attack and redirect it at them so that you are not attacking them, but they are attacking themselves. I means harmony, ki means energy, do means the way, which is founded in many beautiful principles of Buddhism, especially Zen. But that principle applies to this arcanum. When people are aggressive to us with peace, we respond with kindness, with love. We transform our own negative impressions of our resentment and pride. We don't act on those elements, but instead we respond with kindness, genuine kindness. Not forced or strained, but insightful. And personally, in my own profession, I deal with many difficult clients which act very negative towards me on certain occasions. Instead of responding with anger, I respond with kindness and disarms them to the point that they don't retaliate or feel negative, but do what they need to do. But on a deeper alchemical sexual level, this pertains to how the couple takes that same mind training, that control of one's own mind, and does it exactly in the sexual act itself. One thing I will relate to you is a quote from the Quran to kind of emphasize what we've explained already. There shall be no compulsion, coercion, in the acceptance of religion. From Surah 2, verse 256. Interesting that this is Arcanum 2, or the synthesis of Arcanum 2. And we'll talk about this quote in more detail towards the end of this lecture. So I said the line has many levels of meaning. In alchemy, in Europe, in the Middle Ages, and in Arabia, the lion is a symbol of gold. And we know that the sexual energy contains the gold of the spirit. We see here a few images 
On the right, the line of Judah. In the middle, a throne made from the heads of lions and the paws of lions. And then we see a chariot of a, a goddess being driven by lions, which reminds us how in Atlantis, in that ancient epoch, it is said that lions would be used to drive chariots for certain ceremonies, which would teach this knowledge. So instead of going to sports games or seeing football or going to the Colosseum, people of Atlantis, before they degenerated, would perform rituals, would go to see rituals in the public to teach about the sacred knowledge. And so the lions were used to drive chariots. And a lion, in that sense, refers to the solar bodies. As we mentioned, the solar bodies are precisely those vehicles which transmit the light of Christ, the creative force. And those bodies are necessary in order to incarnate the being. Solar astral, solar mental, solar causal vehicles. The thrones of masters represent the solar vehicles. A master meditates, sits within his own true nature on a throne of gold made of lions. And it's interesting that in Hebrew, the word for lion, aria, similarly relates to the Hebrew word aur. Aria, or arian, arian, relating to Ares, the god of war, is similar to the word for light. The only lighter that's missing from lion is vav. In order to become a lion of Judah, a master, one must work with the spine, the Hebrew letter Vav, in which the creative forces rise. The word for gold in Spanish is Oro, reminding us of the Egyptian god Horus, Horus, the spirit. And as you saw in the card of Arcanum 11, Astrologically, this card relates to Aries on the bottom left of that graphic, but also the sun on the bottom right, indicating that the, the fiery forces of the sun, the solar energies, are within our creative energy, which rise to Aries. And Aries is represented by a ram, which is a, an adult lamb. It's interesting in the book of Revelation that you find the lamb of God or the ram or the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes is associated with the lion of Judah who must prevail to open the seven seals, the seven books, which is a representation of our seven bodies that we must activate, become conscious of. In the Kabbalah, we have Malkut, the physical body, wherein we must raise the potable gold of the alchemist from the sexual glands to the brain, from the sun of our sexual organs to the Aries in the head, the ram, in order to become a Christ, a solar being. We must next raise the serpentine fire of the Kundalini in the vital body. Yesod, 
followed by hod, glory, the emotional body. Then netzach, the mind, mental body, followed by the cause of vehicle, tiferet. Budi or geburah must be purified and crystified with that fire. And likewise, the body of Atman, the spirit. So these are the seven vehicles of the seven lower sephiroth of the tree of life. In alchemy, the lead of the personality is transmuted, transformed into the gold of, of the being, which are virtues and qualities, qualities of the spirit, of divinity. So in that way, we drive our chariot, or better said, the divine drives the chariot of God within us. So if you're familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, we find that there are four horses driven by Krishna, the Christ, and Arjuna, who is the human soul, controlling mind, emotions, vitality, and physicality. So we'll talk about those seven bodies in detail here when talking about Sholomah, Solomon, the solar man, and Bathsheba, Bet Shabbat. The word shalom means peace. And that peace of God is precisely the solar energy, the line of Judah. So in this arcanum, we mentioned that that line must be controlled with serenity, with peace. Shalaman is the solar man made into the image of Christ in which all the seven bodies of the human being are fully purified by the fire of the kundalini but also the fire or the light of the Christic force in the serpents of light. We have lions decorating the throne or the stairway leading to Solomon's throne itself referring to how one must ascend seven steps Seven initiations of fire. Seven initiations of a kundalini. And after having raised those fires, if one chooses the direct path, the path to fully incarnate the being and to fully eliminate desire, the ego, one incarnates Christ. One abandons those heights of nirvana, the world of Tiferet, Giburah, Chesed, the spirit the divine soul, the human soul, in order to return to Malkut, the physical body, the physical world, to help teach this knowledge, to give guidance, to give insight. At that point, one can raise, when having Christ incarnated, what is known as the serpents of light. So many people talk about kundalini, fire, which is the first step on the mountain of initiation. But if one wishes to continue and enter in the higher stages of the path, one has to incarnate Christ and then raise seven serpents of light, Christic energy, light, purity, gold. You can create the solar bodies in their germinal state, but they must be fully perfected. And this is precisely the path of Bathsheba, Bet Shaba. So in the Bible, King David took Bathsheba as wife. And Bathsheba originally was the wife of Uriah, 
Aurea. Uriel. The light of Christ. And the word Uria is associated with the letters Aleph, Vav, Resh, Yod, He. Or Uriahu. Uria. The light of Yahu or Yao of Christ. It's a symbol of how that light is married to those seven bodies of the human being. When it is raised, when it is perfected. It's interesting that David in Hebrew, David, means boiler, an alchemical furnace, which is precisely our body. Our body and the sexual glands is the furnace from which the fires of sexual heat can stimulate and purify their earth elements so that the gold can be extracted with the steam of the spinal column, the breath. And those forces are then placed into the solar bodies themselves, are creating those vehicles through that energy, through the work of the four elementals of nature, of which we'll talk about. But in synthesis, we must purify seven houses. Each body is a house, signified by bet. Sheba means seven, and bet means house. So David, with the letters dalet, vav, dalet, signifies acrostically daat in the throat, vav in the heart, and yesod in sex. Yesod ends with dalet. So through the work of sexual alchemy and the willpower of our soul, our concentration, the Hebrew letter Vav, of which we talked about in Arcanum 6, learns to control the foundational energies of creation, Yesod, through David. And David means boiler, to boil. And remember that in the heat of union, that is when the elements become stirred up in the psyche. And it is a, the moment where you can catch certain egos in action. Because as Samael and Vior explained, if the water does not boil at 100 degrees Celsius, then that which must be disintegrated cannot be disintegrated. He was talking about ordeals in the physical world, which we may face on the street, at our job, at work. But the greatest ordeals always occur with our partner as a husband with one's wife, and as a wife with one's husband. So that is precisely the great boiling and fire that churns within the body and the mind, because the heart becomes inflamed, the mind inflamed, the body inflamed. But by learning to control your bet, your house, you learn to raise the lion of gold within your seven bets, your seven bodies. It's interesting that in Arcanum 11, you have 1 plus 1 equals 2, the divine science, as we explained. There are different unities here mentioned throughout the Bible. Adam, Eve, as well as David and Bathsheba, but then also Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. 
So David and Bathsheba is a symbol of working in a marriage. But also Solomon, the solar man, is born from their union. When a man and wife work with Da'at, their spinal column, and Yesod, they learn to raise the energies of the fire of Kundalini up the physical, vital, astral, mental, causal, buddhic, and atmic bodies. Or Malkut, Yesod, Hod, Netzach, Tiberet, Geburah, Chesed. From that union emerges Solomon, a resurrected master, a perfected being, who is married to the queen of Sheba. And a queen in Hebrew means is Malka, reminding us of Malkut. So the wife of Solomon, the perfected being, is a fully resurrected body, a perfected body that has been rejuvenated by the light of the divine. So, the Arcanum 11, the two pillars of the tree of life, relate. We talked about the pillar of mercy, the right-hand pillar of the tree of life, which contains chokmah, chesed, and etzach. You also have the pillar of severity on the left, with binah at the top, geburah in the middle, and hod at the bottom. But then you also have the union with the two unities, mercy and justice, male, female, Adam, Eve, Vav and Zayin, unite into a middle perfect, uh, perfected unity, the pillar of equilibrium, which is the center of the tree of life itself, composed of Keter, Da'at, Tiferet, Yesod, Malkut. So Jaquin Boaz, Mercy, justice, or Vav and Zayin. Unite in order to form a life within oneself. Because remember we spoke how Vav and Zayin unite into Chet, the power of Chaya, the Divine Mother Kundalini. The middle pillar is precisely the path of Arcanum 11. Because from the union of husband and wife, we obtain serenity, insight, peace. Remember that the word Judea, the Lion of Judah, is spelled Yod, Hey, Vav, Dalet, Hey. Yod is Keter, Hey is Chokmah, Vav is Binah, Dalet is Daat. So notice that Yod, Hey, Vav, E-A-O, pertains to the top trinity of the tree of life. Dalet is in the throat, the mysteries of alchemy, because when we're with our partner or spouse, we pr- pronounce sacred sounds in order to work with the power of the lion. And then the last hey is the Ein Sof. As we talk about on Arcanum 2, Bethlehem, the house of bread, the divine, absolute, abstract consciousness, the star who guides our interior. It's interesting for the sake of this conversation to talk about a line from the Song of Solomon from the Bible. It's interesting also that the word Sheba in Hebrew means oath. So what is that oath of Malka? Malkut is chastity. Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me 
My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. We'll explain this in between the lines, what this signifies esoterically. Look not upon me because I am black, meaning filled with ego. Anybody who begins alchemy is filled with desire, with lust. And because the Son, Christ, hath looked upon me, meaning exposing my own sinfulness, or the couple's degeneration. So it's painful in the beginning to realize that we are filled with lust, with these desires and elements which are very monstrous. So look not upon me, Queen of Sheba says, because I am black with ego, and because the sun hath looked upon me. Because when you develop light, you see the darkness. And of course, it fills one with great anguish to see that these elements exist. My mother's children, or better said, my divine mother's children, the Elohim, and the children are the Elohim, the masters, were angry with me. Because they made me the keeper of the vineyards of transmutation, of the wine of transubstantiation, of alchemy. But my own vineyard have I not kept. So what is a vineyard? Is a the body. Our body is a garden of Eden, in which we possess the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. The tree of knowledge is the sexual organs. The tree of life is the spine. And so my divine mother's children were angry with me. The gods were angry because we had engaged in lustful acts in our past existences. And it's interesting here that they say, or the scripture says, they made me the keeper of the vineyards, meaning in some past life one had worked in this knowledge. One was a keeper of the vineyard, was working in alchemy, transmuting. But because of certain failures and failing certain ordeals. One was not able to fulfill that commandment, but my own vineyard have I not kept. We have an image of uh, alchemy in relation to the economy of persuasion. This is an image of an alchemical boiler composed by Paul Lafoli, which contains many images that are relevant for this discussion. David is the boiler, and the spinal column is represented in the center here by the athanor, the furnace. The furnace is the alchemical crucible in which that which is impure can be transformed into that which is pure. There is an occult saying, vivify the flame of the spirit with the force of love. We find that the planets gravitate around the Athenor. The moon, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars, Venus, the sun. And we see that this circle of the evolving and devolving forces are all managed through how we use creative energy. So if you remember our Kanam 10, we talked about the wheel of samsara or the bhava chakra. All the forces of nature 
are, in their synthesis, the energies of Christ. All the planets gravitate around the force of love. But depending on how we use that energy determines our psychological state. So the planets gravitate physically because of Christ, the solar light. But also, psychologically, we create the virtues of the soul relating to the seven planets in relation to how we use that energy. So Christ as the sun is precisely the power that organizes all of the universe into galaxies, solar systems, planets, infinites. The whirling dervishes with their dances originally from the lovely order founded by Rumi, or I believe Rumi's son. You find the dervishes rotate, spinning, showing the rotation of the planets around the sun through the force of love. As above, so below. So that gold, which is so essential for creating the solar bodies, is within the furnace, within the semen. We find the four elements we talked about in Arcanum 4, the emperor, represented at the bottom of this glyph. These four elements unite and are synthesized through the quanta, or the ether, the akasha, the fire of kundalini, which are harnessed and controlled through the bellows, the lungs. So how you work with the four elementals of nature depends upon your mind stream, but also how you control breath. We work with the gnomes in alchemy when learning to conserve the prime of matter, the semen. The gnomes are the elementals of earth in which they take and extract the gold, the virtue, the substances and are able to take them up the spine or the mountain range of our back, depositing them within our mind and within our heart. We also have the waters controlled by the undines represented in this lower graphic. The undines control the waters, the fluids, the flow of certain substances in our nervous systems, which are controlled by the sylphs and sylphids, our breath, our breathing. And with our breath, depending on whether it is erratic or controlled, determines how we work with fire. Because breath Mind and sex are united. Couples should learn to control their breathing because too much breath that is erratic, focusing on the exhalations and too much movement of the body will result in losing the fire itself. And lastly, we talked about air, water, fire, and earth synthesizing within the quanta the ether, because how you control these elements in your body, in your mind stream, with breath is how we control those forces and rise them up the ethanol, the spine, up to the distillery, which is the brain, you know, chemical science. Yes? Um, quick question. Uh, from what I gather, the 
requires uh, the creative potential. Yes. So you basically you have to use all these forces, all the elements. Yes. So the union of them is con is performed in us when we learn to control our mind, because how you use those elements depends on your mind, the aerial thoughts, your heart, the fires of emotions, and mem, the waters of sex. Aleph in the head, shin in the heart, mem in the sexual glands. And so those three Hebrew letters we talked about previously in Arcanum 3 unite to spell Hashem, which is the name of God. You create the name of the Lord, the being, the principles of the divine, by learning to work with your thinking, your feeling, and your, act, and your behavior. And the elements become controlled in you as you learn to control the ego. Because the ego squanders the waters of life which contain the fire through too much passionate breathing, exhalations, too much movement of the earth, one's body, until that element is expelled, is lost. So vivify the flame of the spirit with the force of love, with serenity. You control the fires with love, with chastity. And chastity and love have nothing to do with lust. But people tend to think, because we have so much lust inside, that lust and desire, or better said, lust and sexual attraction is synonymous. But really it isn't. It's different. Lust takes sexual attraction for its own purposes. Because sexual attraction is natural. We find it between plants, between flowers, between stars. All the universe is governed by that force of love and chastity. But it's only in the animal kingdom in which one learns to develop lust, desire, and procreate in that level. And then when people have evolved from a consciousness of that level to a humanoid state, they carry the animal still with them. So the force of alchemy of the serpent is controlled by these elements. And that is how we develop the virtues of the soul within the planets, alchemically speaking. The seven hierarchies of the logos. So on the right we see an image of a man and a woman. The sun and the moon. Male, female. Which reminds us of the pairs of opposites within all of nature, within alchemy, as well as Taoism. We have male, female, positive and negative, active, passive, Osiris, Isis, Baal, Bel, and Ashtart, Ishtar, Shiva and Parvati, husband, wife, father, mother, sun and moon, fire and water, heat and cold, volatile and fixed. In Chinese alchemy or Taoism, we find masculine, the heaven, yang, fire, represented by the man or the sun. We have the feminine, the earth, yin, water. In the union of yin and yang, husband and wife, you form Tao, which is pronounced or spelled T-A-O, reminding us of the cross. And it's interesting that Taoism, or the Tao, 
is represented as a D sound. E, A, O. Or Dalet and Yod, He, Vau. Again, reminding us of Yehuda, the line of Judah. So to awaken the, the dragon of Taoism in the spine is the work of the Kundalini and also the serpents of light. We have seven dragons of fire, seven serpents. We also have seven dragons of light, which we'll be discussing more in depth in relation to the three mountains and future courses. So the tiger in al- uh, Chinese alchemy is associated with sacred fire. And a dra- to be a dragon is to be a master. Because a dragon has power over the fire, over the waters, over the earth, and over the, the air. The dragon breathes fire, swims in the water, flies in the skies, and dominates the land. It's a symbol of how, by mastering these elements in us, we become a dragon through husband and wife, male, female. Another few things we'll mention about the sacred fire is that lust and sexual attraction, as I stated, are opposites. Because lust is the harnessing of the sexual energy from its primordial state through the ego. So the sexual energy produces naturally within a couple love, attraction, longing, purity, love. But the ego as lust is a mistransformation of that energy in which those forces or fires are channeled within hell. So you have two types of fire. You have solar fire and lunar fire represented also by the binaries of Arcanum 11. The animal ego is a form of fire. Obviously, when we're angry, we are burning ourselves alive, but also burning the, the, our neighbor with our resentment. And likewise with lust, with sexual passion, which have negative connotations. So we must learn to harness the fire of the ego to comprehend it, to tame it, to dominate it, and disintegrate it through meditation. And when we have comprehended, or better said, comprehended an ego in meditation, we can take our comprehension into the sexual act, where with having the fire of one's partner, one can channel that fire and project it towards the ego to kill it when it's been fully understood. That is how we transform the lunar fire into a purified divine fire, which is known as fohat. And when we work with the runes, I will mention is that we work with fohat, according to Samael and Vior in the magic of the runes. You're learning to assimilate the positive, unconditioned fire from the cosmos, such as the rune fa, man, the seven vowels. And we're channeling that fire consciously throughout our nervous systems, our sexual glands, our organs, our body. But of course, runes are not as powerful as a marriage. Really, the power you harness from a matrimony is much more effective. So in relation to this topic of Arcanum 11, we talk about planetary influences and esoteric schools. 
So what does it mean to regenerate? To regenerate means to have new genesis, to restore, to bring to balance, to bring harmony within oneself. Humanity, as we know, is degenerated, meaning has entered the path of devolution, to decay, to not generate life within the spine, within the mind, within the heart. Because Genesis, as a book of alchemy, teaches about the creation of a spiritual world, the solar bodies, the creations of the heavens and the earth, which are psychological states, and also the purified bodies of the soul within Kabbalah. So this is a school of regeneration. We teach people how to work with Genesis, how to work with that energy, which is Yesod, the foundation of spiritual life, and use that power to restore order and balance within the three brains, within our psyche, and in relation to the cosmos. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote in his Thus Spoke Zarathustra about the way of the Creator, which, if you're interested, I recommend you can go on our website, chicagonosis.org, and look at what he talks about in relation to the creation of the solar bodies. I'll just mention in synthesis that he states, I love he who creates over and beyond himself and thus perishes. That's towards the end of that chapter, which esoterically teaches us that we must learn to create beyond ourselves, meaning at our level we are filled with lust, with animal passion, with desire. And yet, we have the potential to create something greater than us. Husband and wife can create something more than just a physical child, but the golden child of alchemy. Aurus, Aurus, the light. And by perishing to our ego, we remove all the impurities and become perfected. Very difficult, but achievable. And we find that the planet Neptune in alchemy governs these schools of regeneration with a cycle of 165 years in which there are periods of public dissemination of knowledge and conservation of that knowledge. But now all the schools of the science of Neptune, which is the reference to the god of the waters, is now being open because we're in the age of Aquarius. So this school is a Neptunian school where we teach people how to work with Neptune. And remember that Neptune has a trident with three points. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Keter, Chokmah, Bina. Intellectual brain, emotional brain, motor, instinctive, and sexual brain. Uranus, or Uranus, controls the chakras of the sexual glands, as we explained in a previous lecture in this course. But Neptune governs the way schools work, in which this type of knowledge is taught. Neptune influences the pineal gland, and Neptune relates to the Holy Spirit. So when there's references in Greek mythology to Poseidon and the Roman Neptune, the god of the waters, it refers to the Holy Spirit. And in the stories of Odysseus, returning home from Troy, is constantly afflicted by Neptune, or better said, Poseidon in the Greek myth. 
There's a part where he's returning to his land of Ithaca, his homeland, after 20 years of journeying on the sea, in which he is shipwrecked. He was command, or Neptune was commanded by Zeus, you may punish him for his crimes, but don't kill him. So it's a symbol of this arcanum. You're working with the lion, and the lion seems about to devour you, and you feel terrified, as if between life and death, spiritually speaking. And yet Zeus commands the lion, or better said, the divine mother, Athena, is commanded by Zeus. Let him live, but let him suffer a bit karmically for his mistakes, for having misused that energy in the past. And so Odysseus swims with his, all of his life and makes it ashore, but barely. And it's a symbol of how we must swim against the waters of our temptation in the mind. But if we're faithful to our being, you'll reach the shore. But it's difficult because we have a lot of degeneration inside. So in relation to Neptunian schools, Neptune influences the pineal gland, whereas we, wherein we have an atom of the Holy Spirit, which resides in the pineal gland. We have a Christic atom related to chokmah, in the third eye, the pituitary gland. The pineal gland, relating with perception and omniscience, self-observation, self-remembering, perception, relates to the pineal gland. And um, Adam of the Father is in the root of the nose. The Adam Anu. To remember God, the presence of our being. To be faithful means after we communicate with our inner being and receive guidance and insight that we remain chaste. Chastity is the way that one works with the solar energy and learns to harness it for God. To be faithful doesn't mean to just believe that by following some stipulations, do this, do that, do this, as in a checklist, that one is somehow saved miraculously. But faithfulness, faith, is a solar energy applied to action. When we consciously perceive our inner God and know our God for ourselves. And in that way, we learn to maintain that connection because we have, even despite having that remembrance of the divine presence, the ego is showing its ugly head. It becomes very difficult. If we allow our energies to be taken by the ego, we enter into temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. So remember that Jesus was praying before his passion, my God, let this cup of bitterness pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. It's a symbol of how even when having development, or when one is developing light, insight, understanding, the temptation is there. And the mind assaults us with its passions, its afflictions, its longings, its wants, its cravings. And to be faithful is to remember that insight, that connection with your God, and recognizing that you are not those passions, not those desires. And that is how we work against the lion, or work with the lion. And of course, schools of regeneration teach that process, such as the Rosicrucian Alchemical Lodge, which went secret in 1620. The Knights Templars 
such as the, and the Manichaeans of Persia, the Sufis, Aryavarta Ashram of Tibet, Tibetan schools, all those colleges of initiation uh, went secret for a time and teach this alchemical knowledge. So in these lectures we always include some reference to the Hebrew scriptures. We have Psalm 119, which in a series of verses explain the mysteries of the Hebrew Kabbalah, the alphabet of Kabbalah. Verses 81 through 88 all begin with Kaf. And the Hebrew letter Kaf is associated with the crown, the head. And we'll be talking about the meaning of the Hebrew letter Kaf itself. My soul is being consumed for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes fail for your word, saying, when will you comfort me? For I am like a wineskin in the smoke. I do not forget your statutes. So going back to your question about what does it mean to be faithful is in this arcanum, in the Psalms. And personally, when I struggle with my own egos of the mind and lust and desire or whatever problems I'm facing, I look to the Psalms. Because I remember that all the prophets like David, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna, faced those temptations. And of course, with their high level of being, the temptations were much more stronger for them. Because the greater temptation, the greater the fire, the more light you can extract. So my soul is being consumed through your salvation. I hope in your word. Meaning, through those experiences in meditation, in which you hope for insight from your inner God. And when we're consistent and consumed with that longing for divinity that inspires us to practice day by day, we therefore hope in the word of our being, meaning the teachings of our inner Christ, which come to us in dreams. And therefore we receive insight. My eyes fail for your word, saying, when will you comfort me? Or, Eli, Eli, lama sabna chani, Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's a very painful process. Well, because we still have ego, or better said, because we are against the ego in this physical world, people reject us. But, because we still have ego, the divine cannot incarnate within us. And therefore, there's a separation and loneliness there in the mind and the heart. It's very painful and difficult and bitter. My eyes fail for your word, meaning my spiritual sight lacks insight, the experiences of seeing you face to face. Because there are periods of light and there's periods of darkness in which you may have a lot of internal experiences and insights, inspirations, and then other times in which you don't see anything and which is very difficult. For I am like a wineskin in the smoke. And what is that smoke? The thoughts of the ego, the mind, which fill and obscure the sky of our understanding. Because if you awaken in the astral plane and you look at the sky, you ask the Master, show me what is my level of being? And they'll show you through the clouds or the sky. If it's clear, it means, and you see stars, it means that you have a connection with your God. It's, your mind is illuminated. But if it's cloudy, it means that the ego is very present. The Quran teaches this very beautifully. And I'll reference some scripture for that. 
but I am like a wineskin in the smoke. And what is that wineskin? Is the soul that can hold the wine of the being, of transmuted energy. And that wineskin must be strong and not have any holes in it, otherwise the wine will leak out. And that's a reference to lust. I am like a wineskin in the smoke. It's hardened. It won't release any energy. I do not forget your statutes, meaning of transmutation, of chastity. To remember to transmute, work with runes, pranayama, exercises. That's what it means to be faithful. Not out of some dogmatic sense that I need to do this or else I'm going to go to hell. But instead, because we see the benefit, it brings to our mind stream. And we feel that strength and peace when we work with that power, with the Lion of Judah. As what are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on my persecutors? And who are those persecutors? Lust, anger, pride, fear, vanity, laziness, gluttony. The proud have dug pits for me, which are not according to your law. What is a pit? Meaning your ego presents obstacles for your own understanding and, and well-being, and which you have to cross over. All your commands are faithful. They persecute me with lying. Help me. Because the ego lies. Egos of doubt, fear, terror, insecurity. Those thoughts are projections of the mind, of the intellect. And of course, the mind cannot know the truth. But when you know from your consciousness, from experience, you can't be fooled or allow yourself to be tempted in that way. But all the commands are faithful, meaning the being, when the being says he will do something, he will do it. And therefore, the mind doubts, fears, troubles. Help, and then we say, help me alleviate my suffering. In a moment, they had finished me on earth, but I did not forsake your precepts of alchemy, of transmutation. Give me life according to your mercy, has said the Spirit, and I will keep the testimonies of your mouth. And the mouth relates to the throat, dot, the verb, alchemy. So let me keep faith to the testimonies of those experiences you've given me in meditation and in the dream state. That is what following the power of kaf is about. So the Hebrew letter kaf relates to Arcanum 11 because it is the crown. Keter in Hebrew is the crown, the top sephirah of the tree of life. Within kaf, we find in its hieroglyphic, you could say three points referring to the three primary forces of the tree of life. Keter is the father, the logos, the divine, who is the top of the tree of life and who represents the Hebrew letter Yod, the primordial point from which all the universe emerges, as we explain in Arkadam 10. Kaf literally means palm or sole of the foot. This reminds us of the stigmata of Christ as well as the crown of thorns. We see the crown of thorns here represented with kaf. We also have the kippah and the kufi. We have the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions represented here. But before talking about the other two, let's talk about the crown of thorns.
and what that symbolizes. So when beginning the work of alchemy, one needs Christic will. The mind must be crucified. Its desires must be comprehended, controlled, and eliminated through meditation, through prayer, through understanding, and through the sacred fire of the Holy Spirit. The crown of thorns represents the will of Christ, which helps to dominate the passions. And of course, it's very painful to face one's own egotism in the mind. And when Jesus was experiencing this ordeal physically, he did it to represent something psychological in us. That crown of thorns, that Christic will, is developed in us through certain practices. We've worked with the rune Dorn previously, in which you place your left hand on your left hip, your side, your right hand on your right hip. You do the mantras ta, te, ti, to, tu. It helps to develop Christic will, which is a type of willpower that knows how to follow the impetus of the being and not the ego. But that's a quality we learn to discern through practice. So if we do runes every morning, if you struggle with willpower, whether for work or transmutation or practice, work with the rune Doran. Face the east, close your eyes, imagine the solar light entering your mind, your heart, your body. Do the mantras. Ta te to tu the consonant t is the cross which sparks the light of christ in the pineal gland what's the, the name of that rune again it is the rune dorn d o r n which reminds us of the nordic god Donner, who is Thor, the god of war against the ego, or the god Ares, the god of the ram. That's it. Stand with your heels together in military style. And then pray, my inner Christ, give me Christic will so that I can dominate my ego. And you'll sense, as you do, do that practice daily, you get more light. And you start to see egos in you that you never thought existed. But with serenity, you learn to overcome them, not to identify with those passions. Because to be fearful is to let identify with the element. But instead, to see it as it is with serenity, we overcome it. So cuff is that crown. It also means palm or sole of the foot, which also reminds us of the stigmata of Christ, as I said, as well as the symbols of sexual purity and transmutation and uh, path of chastity within each of the bodies of the human being. So, as we stated, sexuality is a sacrament of prayer. Hands, when they're placed together, traditionally symbolize, or better said, alchemically symbolize, prayer and the sexual act. Because how we act with our hands is how we act, is a reflection of what we, how we act in our mind. So, prayer is a symbol of the two unities, Male, female, acronym 11, united. And the sexual act between husband and wife is the greatest form of prayer when it is learned and controlled with understanding. 
This is beautifully represented by Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. When Romeo first meets Juliet, his first words and his first kiss with her, a symbol of how man and woman are working alchemically. But also Romeo is the human soul, Tipareth, the warrior who has to conquer his maiden, Geburah, Budi, the divine soul. Romeo says to Juliet in Act 1, Scene 6, If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. So he approaches his wife, If I profane you with my unworthiest hand, this holy shrine of alchemy, the gentle sin is this. And what is a gentle sin? It means that one feels that longing of gentleness with one's partner, that inspiration of love. But there is sin present because we have lust in the beginning, which diminishes more and more as we work. And what does it mean to smooth that rough touch of lust, we can say? Or what does it mean to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss? It means to approach one's partner with, with chastity, to kiss with purity, with serenity, which is persuasion, not coercion or lust. Juliet states, Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. So she's saying, you, you pilgrim, you are seeking to initiate yourself in the mysteries. You wrong your hand by being lustful. And so to be mannerly devoted in alchemy means to kiss palm to palm with chastity. Of course, people read this scene, they think it refers to Juliet not wanting to engage in a relationship right off the bat. But there's something symbolic here, profound. So palm to palm, meaning approach me your wife, with purity, palm to palm, referring to the kaf, because how you work with your, the energies of your, your mind expressed in your actions and your hands, your willpower. Because kater is the crown, the head, and the human soul is the hand, tifereth. So we must learn to obey the influences of our inner God. From kater, we express as the bodhisattva, as the human soul, to the hand. Romeo says, Have not saints' lips and holy palmers too? Juliet states, I, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. So people read this, they think, or hear this performance, they think it has to do with Romeo trying to become an, get in a relationship with her. He says, Don't saints have lips and holy palmers too? Juliet says, Yes, but they should use it in prayer. Meaning, People literally interpret to mean, yes, but don't approach me in that way. Instead, it has to do with approaching one with purity in, sec- in, in the sexual act. Oh, then, Romeo says, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou lest faith turn to despair. So let lips do what hands do. He's saying, let me kiss you. Lips know how to pray through speech. Usually this is how people interpret, but in the sexual act, one learns to pray 
with divine kisses, with purity, with love. Juliet states, saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Meaning, saints don't fornicate, but they grant sexual union for the purpose of chastity. So people literally interpret it to mean, saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Meaning, she's allowing Romeo to kiss her. Romeo states, then move not while my prayer's effect I take. Thus from my lips, by thine, my sin is purged. He kisses her. So move not while my prayers affect I take. Meaning to go, to go ahead and kiss her. But even more deeper level, don't move too much in the sexual act. Don't stimulate too much fire. In order for that prayer and that transmutation to be really effective. Thus from my lips, by thine, my sin is purged, is purified. Juliet states, Then have my lips the sin that they have took by allowing you to kiss me. But in in alchemical science, we learn that when husband and wife unite, they share mind, heart, and action. They become one being, one unity. Husband and wife share qualities and traits, tendencies, appetites, qualities that are similar to each other. Because through sexual union, they've become one being in certain regards. When they they unite. So... One learns what the woman absorbs the qualities of the man, even some egotistical qualities as well, and the husband absorbs egotistical qualities from the wife. Romeo states, Sin from my lips, O trespass sweetly urged, give me my sin again. And he kisses her again. So he says, Sin from my lips. Yes, I have ego, I have desire, but through sexual union is how we're going to become pure completely. So trespass sweetly urged, meaning it's painful to see one's lust, but at the same time, you feel that love for your partner. And therefore he says, give me my sin again. Let me unite with you. Let me bake, rebake the bread of alchemy day by day, never becoming tired of the act itself. Juliet states, you kiss by the book. And people say it means he kisses well, but really alchemically, you kiss by the book of life. According to the scripture of the gods in the superior planes, with chastity, with purity. So as I said, the hand is an extension of the actions of the mind. And we mentioned that persuasion, as we find represented in this act with, between Romeo and Juliet, is precisely knowing how to work with the signs of love, the creative energy. So Romeo courts Juliet or the human soul courts the divine soul with purity, with serenity. Persuasion is a much more exerting or powerful influence than coercion, than lust. As Prophet Muhammad taught in Surah 2, verse 256, which we started quoting earlier, there shall be no compulsion or coercion in religion. The right course has become clear from the wrong. So whoever disbelieves in Tagut, meaning the path of black magic, of fornication, and believes in Allah, has grasped the most trustworthy handhold with no break in it. And Allah is hearing and knowing. So what is that handhold? Working with kaf, the powers of the crown, which express within your soul, through your hand, through your human qualities. 
So I spoke with a, another missionary recently about this topic, and he mentioned to me an experience he had in the astral plane. He's a fallen bodhisattva, meaning he's a fallen angel. He was once uh, self-realized in the past, and yet because he was tempted by the lust, or better said, not lust, but tempted by to marry again, he fell. Not in this lifetime, past lives. And so he told me an experience he had. He was struggling very hard against egos of black magic that he created in his mind stream. And he was driving his car or, and also doing other things where he had a, a repeated experience, where his God was giving him insight. He had a very bad habit of biting his nails. And he had an insight come to him from an experience. I am your hand. And he stopped. So, what is the hand? Is cuff, how you act. And so his being was telling him, why do you forget me and your nervousness and that habit, biting your nails or being agitated? His inner God was showing him, I am your hand, meaning I am part of you and you are part of me. I am Keter and you are my human soul. Therefore, you need to obey, he says, if you want to return. And then he mentioned he had an astral experience where he met the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama is a Kabbalist of Buddhism. And taught him and said to him very directly in a Kabbalistic way, is the Bodhisattva greater than his hand? There's a, a koan, a meditation question. And this missionary bowed before him and says, you know, thank you for teaching me. The Dalai Lama knows this teaching very well, but he doesn't teach it publicly because the people and audience he's reaching are not attracted to the very depths of alchemy. But he's trying to lead them gradually to having some understanding. So what does it mean? Are you, is the Bodhisattva greater than his hand? Is, are you, as the human soul, greater than his influence, Keter, Kaf? So he told me this experience and I was you know, obviously very impressed. It reminded me of the Quran. Let he who disbelieves in Targut and believes in Allah has grasped the most trustworthy handhold, is firm in one's knowledge, one's experience. So, Kaf is the power of understanding of Keter, in which one learns to overcome the qualities of the ego. So, that cuff is the crown of thorns. Use your Christic will, overcome those habits, those desires. Because his being was telling him, quit acting in this way because I'm trying to help you. And then he had an internal experience with the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama was reiterating what he was taught in him physically, or better said, in his insights, his meditation. So cuff is the crown, which is the crown of the Malakim. We have the word king in Hebrew, Malik represented here, with Mem, Lamed, and Final Kaf. Final Kaf is this, one of the first of the Sofit, I believe, in the Hebrew alphabet. A Sofit means a final version of that Hebrew letter when it's placed at the end of a word. So you have beginning versions of the word and, the, and a different uh, a Sofit, the way uh, it ends at the end of a word. Sof means end. 
So that crown is precisely the crown of the divine glories that incarnates within any initiate as represented in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, which we find the four and twenty elders in that scripture who talk about the power of Keter, the crown, Kaf. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, meaning the throne of your spinal column, in which you have the head, the crown, the power of Christ, the Keter, in your mind. And worship him that lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are created and were created. So that crown, Keter, can also fall into the abyss. If one takes one's crown, if you are self-realized and you have that power in heaven, but are tempted by sex below, you can lose your powers. If you allow yourself to be tempted, you fall. That crown, Keter, goes down into the abyss. Represented by the final Kaf and Malek. But first, let's talk about Keter, the crown. When the crown is upright, it is powerful. It is the crown chakra. It produces what is called Kevod, which means glory. When it falls, when that power from heaven is channeled down into hell through the path of the demons, it becomes destructive, which is something that is elaborated upon in the Zohar. So we've mentioned previously that there was a conversation between the Hebrew letters before Jehovah in order to create the world, create the heavens and the earth. Each of the Hebrew letters approached Jehovah in order to ask the divine to begin creation with them, with that archetype, that principle associated with the Hebrew letters, as we've been explaining. The letter Mem entered. She said to him, Jehovah, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for by me you are called Malek, King. He replied, Certainly so. But I will not create the world by you, since the world needs a king. Return to your place, you along with Lamed and Kaf, for the world should not be without a king. At that moment, the letter Kaf descended from his throne of glory and said, Master of the world, may it please you to create the world by me, for I am your Kavod, glory. By Kaf, or when Kaf descended from the throne of glory, 200,000 worlds trembled. The throne trembled, and all the worlds verged on collapse. The Blessed Holy One said to her, Kaf, Kaf, what are you doing here? I will not create the world by you. Return to your place, for you imply Kelea, destruction, a decree of destruction from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 23. Return to your throne and stay there. She thereupon left his presence and returned to her place. So I'll tell you something I experienced in the astral plane, which is actually very disturbing, but it reveals something related to the Hebrew letter Kaf and this Arcanum especially. We talked about how the final Kaf is the power of Keter that can descend from the, under the tree of life, from Keter, or the crown of Keter, Chokmah, and Binah, down into Chesed, 
Gebura, Tiferet, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and finally down into Malkut. But that energy, when it's channeled wrong and is abused, descends into the hell realms. Personally, I've had experience with a certain fallen Malek, a king. He's a master of the Black Lodge, very evil man. His name is Moloch. He's a fallen angel. He took his powers from heaven and threw them down in the hell because his objective is to learn to, well, first he wants to be disintegrated down there and to reinitiate a new journey up into the evolving processes of Arcanum 10 to gain more knowledge. But of course, that path is very mistaken and very painful. He's a fallen angel, very demonic. And I've had this man come after me many times in the astral plane because uh, obviously I have certain egos in the past that associate with black magic. But let's not be afraid of this topic because anyone who enters Gnosis has egos of hatred, pride, gluttony, vanity, laziness. It's rare to find someone who's in the Gnostic movement who never at once dabbled in the past with mistaken art. So it's very common. It's very rare to find someone who know, who's, doesn't have that ego. So I remember I was meditating at 4 a.m. in the astral plane. I awoke consciousness. I looked to the sky and I was, had a very beautiful experience in which I saw the heavens. I saw stars. And my inner God was showing me, you are ascending, but don't forget that light. I walked away and I suddenly felt myself returning back from the superior astral dimension to the inferior astral. Because the astral plane is dualistic. There's a superior aspect relating to the gods. And there's an inferior aspect related to the inferno with the hell realms. So I, obviously with ego, I gravitate towards hell because I'm a demon. I'm not a saint, but I'm repentant. So I was walking in the astral plane. Then suddenly as I was looking around, it was twilight. And some island VR mentions that this is a very dangerous time to uh, invoke masters. Because the, during the f- hours of 4 a.m. in the early morning of dawn is when the black sorcerers are very active. And my ego invoked without my will uh, that demon. And he came, and in that experience, he was trying to drag me into the infernal worlds into the hell realms. There's a giant, big giant demon taller than the ceiling here, like 14 feet, 16 feet, grabbed me by the arm and was trying to show me things and pull me into the, down into the infernal worlds to try to initiate me into his lodge. But of course I fought him, I conjured him. But he's a very big demon. And I felt a lot of panic and fear when I woke up because I felt like I had failed. I was being pulled by this demon and you know, I had this certain egotistical attraction to that element. So it was pulling me. And I prayed really intensely to my God to show me mercy and help me to really know that I was fine. Because this is a very unpleasant thing to confront a fallen angel. Very demonic. I awoke in the astral plane again after meditating intensely. And I found myself in my study room in my home reading the Quran. And uh, my father, or my divine father, appeared to me in the form of my, of my physical father. 
stood over my shoulder, looked at my scripture that I was reading, and I said, good, and just walked out. And I, looked at, I was looking in the book itself. I didn't see any writing there, but I saw pictures, living experiences. And I saw an image of that demon, that fallen angel who was pulling me, trying to pull me and take me down. And I was reading the scripture, understanding it. It's, you know, all the unbelievers mentioned in the Quran are those demons who, when you're developing light, they try to pull you from the path. So I saw that demon is the form of a giant golem, an earth creature. A golem in, in Jewish mysticism is a stone statue that has animation life, but no spirituality. It's a fallen demon, a shell, a klipot. And so I read the Quran a lot because that scripture is beautiful. When you're tempted by demons and they're trying to pull you away from your work, I always read that scripture and get a lot of faith from it. And when I was reading the Quran, I found the following quote of exactly what I experienced, which gives me a lot more faith in this knowledge. And we place within the earth firmly set mountains, lest it should shift with them. And we made therein mountain passes as roads that they might be guided. And of course, that mountain, if you have astral experiences, is a symbol of initiation. Seeing the mountain is, means you're ascending along the path. And we made the sky a protected ceiling, but they, from its signs, are turning away. So the Quran talks about the sky. You look in the sky, you see what is the level of your mind, the qualities of your kaf, your head, your mind stream. If it's cloudy, you have a lot of ego there. But if it's full of stars, if it's a clear sky, no cloud, it means you have illumination. But I had that experience, like the Quran says, I looked at the sky, but then I allowed myself to be pulled away. So it says right there, we have made the, the sky a protecting ceiling, meaning to protect you and show you what you need to do to change. But I turned away. It says in the scripture. And then that was when I was exposed to that demon. Now, this is the reason why we learn the conjurations of the four and the seven, because we need to reject those demons. If you face a fallen angel like that, conjuring with the conjuration of the four is not going to be effective, because it's like fighting a giant, really. You have no power against a demon that's been developing for aeons like that. So I always pronounce, whenever I see him in the astral plane, when he's coming after me, I say, by the holy Elohim, by the names of the genii, Kashiel, Jehaltiel, Afiel, and Zarahiel, at the command of Orifiel, depart from us, Moloch. We deny thee our children to devour. Amen. 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 I did that recently where he came to me in the astral plane again. I did that prayer, and suddenly Orifiel, I believe, came, took him out, chased him down into the infernal worlds. So this, we have to protect ourselves, and we have to protect our mind stream by working with Kaf. The crown. Because that crown, that power of the head, can be used for divine purposes. Or if it's channeled through hell, becomes a fallen being like, a, like that, mon that monster of an ego, of a demon. In that prayer, in the conjuration of the seven, depart from us, Moloch. We deny thee our children to devour. Who are those children? The initiates. Remember that you must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Of course, those certain creatures will try to tempt those children to enter the wrong path. So what does it mean to wear a crown of thorns? It's also symbolized in different ways in Judaism and in Islam. So to wear a kippah or a kufi in Islam or Ju in Judaism or Islam represents how symbolically 
we are trying to incarnate those forces from above into our mind so as to make us kings and queens of nature, of the divine. It also refers to the chakra sahasrara, the crown chakra, or the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, which is the chakra of omniscience, of power. So when people were kippa originally, it was, or kufi, it originally had to do with showing humility before God. When you're teaching the doctrine, you wear a kufi or a kippa to show that you are still developing your knowledge, entering into initiation so that you can learn to help others with that wisdom. It means that one is not self-realized yet, but is still in the process of developing knowledge. So to have light, to have Christ in the mind, represents that power of persuasion. And it's, you know, I mentioned to you that experience about uh, that fallen angel, that demon, because he was trying to coerce me into entering the, the infernal worlds. But an angel never does that. An angel persuades you what is right, but a demon tries to force its will upon you. That's why we say that prayer, we conjure to reject those forces. We must learn to raise the fire of the sexual organs to our head, our mind, relating to the Hebrew letters Yod and Samek, which is beautifully discussed in uh, the Zohar. So the mysteries of Kaf are taught beautifully in this scripture. So in this teaching, we find there are two rabbis speaking to a donkey herder, a symbol of someone who initiates the path or is an initiate on the path and who is controlling the donkey of the mind and the body. Remember that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, 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 the city of peace, the chakra sahasrara, by controlling the the stubbornness of the mind, the body, through transmutation, we enter the heavenly city with Christ, conquering our mind, our heart, our body. So these two rabbis were speaking to a donkey herder in order to talk about the mysteries of not only Kaf, but Yod and Samek. And Samek, we'll talk about in Arcanum 15. Arcanum 15 relates to the serpent, the serpentine power of temptation, which we must overcome. Samek literally means support. It is the serpentine power of the divine Mother Kundalini, which can elevate us from Muladhara to Sahasrara. So the rabbis asked or said to this man, Who appointed you to go here goading donkeys? He replied, Yod waged war with two letters, Kaf and Samek. Remember that yod can also mean hand. It also can mean refer to the phallus. Because a yod is a point which when it is erected as a phallic symbol becomes vav, the sexual male organ. So yod waged war with two letters, kaf and samech. Kaf in the head, samech the serpent, and the base of the spine. They were to be bound together with me. 
Kaf did not want to depart and be bound, since it cannot survive for a moment anywhere else. Because that power of Keter has to remain in heaven. But we have to ascend to that height. If that energy is taken and abused and fallen, it becomes very destructive. The universe trembles. Samek did not want to depart from below so that it could support those who fall. For without Samek, they cannot survive. So this is very beautiful teaching representing the struggle between the mind and the sex. How Yod, the power of Keter, is in a battle within our mind and heart. Our head, our kaf, is at war with sex. The mind must control Samech, the serpent. The serpent must be harnessed and controlled by Yad, our hand, our willpower, symbolically, so that those forces can circulate completely. We find this represented in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verses 21 to 25, where I believe it is Paul of Tarsus explains this process in the Christian doctrine. There exists a war in one's sexual members, or better said, I find then a law that when I would be, do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, or the, from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my, the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. It's a symbol of how one can serve the divine through chastity, and that one is at war with one's lust. The sexual organs and our lustful mind fights against the powers of kaf, the, the solar energies of keter. And this yod this power of will is, is, waged, is waged between Kaf and Samek. So it is Yod that is at war with Kaf and Samek. How we use our Yod, our sexual organs, either to follow the crown, the solar forces above, or to follow into temptation, into lust. Alone, Yod came to me, kissing and embracing me, it's interesting that the Hebrew word here, again, the word yod is hand, and that yod came to this donkey goater and kissed by his hand, reminding us of Romeo and Juliet, to kiss by anyone's hand with chastity. She wept with me, saying, My son, what can I do for you? But look, I will ascend and fill myself with goodness, with hidden celestial splendid letters. Then I will come to you, serving as your support. I will endow you with two letters higher than those that departed, namely Yesh or Yod Shin, substance and celestial Yod and Shin, as your treasury is filled with everything. So, my son, go and go donkeys. That is why I go like this. So, what is Ish? Yod Shin is the creative fires of the divine in the sexual organs, it is the male sexual energy. And Yod is the phallus in which that energy resides, with Shin, as a treasury of light. So the Gnostic Bible talks about the treasuries of the light, which is precisely in sex, and how that golden fleece that 
Jason, the Argonauts must uh, require or acquire is the powers of the soul. Rabbi Eleazar and Rabbi Abba rejoiced and wept. They said, go ride, we will go the donkeys behind you. He said to them, didn't I tell you that it is the command of the king until one driving donkeys arrives? Meaning the Messiah, Christ, riding the mind in order to enter the heavenly city. They said to him, but you haven't told us your name, the site you inhabit. What is it? He replied, the site I inhabit is fine and lofty for me, a certain tower soaring in the air, grand and splendid. Those dwelling in this tower are the blessed Holy One and a certain poor person. This is where I reside, but I have some gone into exile goading donkeys. What is that tower? Your spine, your athanor, in which resides the Holy One, the divine Christ in the mind. But also the poor person, which is us, the human soul, the terrestrial person, who is dalet. And when the fakir, the dalet, the human soul, works with kaf, powers of the head, he becomes a gimel, a rich man. Some of the similar words in Arabic relating to this topic is kaf. So kaf in Arabic is a name of a surah in the Quran, the cave, surat al-kaf. So this surah teaches many mysteries about the nature of the mind of Kitar. In Surat al-Kaf, there are three boys, I believe, they go into a cave to meditate, to pray, where they fall asleep, I believe, for uh, 309 years. And when they wake up, they return back to their life and realize everything has changed. And they recognize the transformations that have gone on with them. But of course, they didn't show themselves to the public because they felt afraid of being stoned to death because of what they experienced. And the Quran teaches that if the boys were seen asleep, spectators would have been terrified. And according to the scripture, really, they would have been afraid of the, the appearance of these boys, or these young men. That is the, the literal scriptural reading of it. So why be afraid of these three young men sleeping in a cave? Because they were empowered with serenity in meditation. Kaf means cave. It refers to the head, your kaf. Your head is a cave. In the darkness of the cave, you have to bring fire from sex to your head. To be intellectual without spirit is to be a kafirin, a kafir, which means unbeliever. So we talked about the intellectual Kabbalists and the intuitive Kabbalists. Intellectual Kabbalists are black magicians. They use dazzling intellectualism without, without any experience of the divine. They have a kaf filled with many theories and beliefs and ideas, intellectualisms, ideas and concepts, but no fire, no understanding, no direct experience. But intuitive Kabbalist learns to transform through alchemy the fires of shin at the base of the spine up to the head. So that kaf spelled or al-kaf Alif, Lam, Kaf, Ha, Fa becomes Kashif. So Kaf, in the middle letter of Kaf, is the letter He or Ha in Arabic. 
which is similar to Hebrew. The Hebrew letter He is the wind, the breath. So how do you transform your head, your cave, to have light? With breath, with the letter Ha, or the Hebrew He, transform the energies through mantra and prayer. So you raise the shin of sex to your, your head. Then Ha, or He, becomes Shin, fire. So then Kaf becomes Kashif. And Kashif in Arabic means unveiling. To unveil. And to unveil something means you have an experience in meditation with your third eye, chakra. You see things. You have insights, astral experiences, jinn experiences, in which the mysteries are unveiled for you. Before we were in darkness in our cave. But with working with fire, in order to illuminate our Kaf, we reach Mukashafa, unveiling. So we have to illuminate our head, our pumpkin gourd, clean out the muck, the filth, the garbage, and put a candle in it so that you can celebrate Halloween, Hallow's Eve, Hallowed Evening. So when a serpent, that fire of Kundalini, swallows the initiate, then the initiate resurrects. They receive what is a crown of light or the crown of horns of Lucifer. And Lucifer is not a demon. It is Luciferus, light of Christ, which mixes with the ego and is a part of our divinity that tempts us and gives us ordeals to train us so that we can work on the desires of our defects and eliminate them. We have taken Lucifer and made him black through fornication. But by working on the ego of lust and eliminating our desires, we uh, produce light. Luciferus. And so when you resurrect, when you've fully eliminated the ego, then you receive the crown of horns of Lucifer, which are from the chakra sahasrara. Demons have their horns in their forehead because they're intellectual. They're kafirin, unbelievers, fornicators, intellectual Kabbalists. But an uh, intuitive Kabbalist who's fully perfected him herself has the crown of the chakra sahasrara illuminated. So the horns are emanate from the crown chakra itself, your kaf. It's also interesting that in Wagner's operas, he depicts Wotan, the father of the gods, with the, he- the helmet of the Valkyria, the helmets with the wings. It's the same meaning, just in the Nordic way. So that fire of kundalini must learn to be harnessed and controlled so that it can be directed towards any purpose. So I mentioned to you that Arcanum 11, persuasion, is developed in us when we learn to transmute energy and direct it through being serene in mind by meditating on our defects and developing our conscious concentration and will as well as imagination. We learn to apply that creative energy towards productive means so that it just doesn't build up and ferment in oneself, but it has to be fulfilled and consciously acted upon. Because that fire has to act. So it's good if you have a lot of energy to not only perform pranayama and transmutation or alchemy, but perform art, write literature, read poetry, do something creative, artistic, make sculptures. And when you do it really consciously with a lot of love, you find that you're developing something very beautiful because your imagination becomes clear. And that helps to work with that power. This kundalini power can be directed and controlled with a certain mantra 
J-A-O-R-I. Yaori. So the serpent kundalini is also known as Quetzalcoatl or Quetzalcoatl, the serpent bird amongst the Aztecs or Kukulkan amongst the Maya. This Quetzal bird is in the shape of a sacred fire in the spine. There's one Quetzal bird for the man, one for the woman. And the mantra, can help direct that marvelous energy of Quetzalcoatl within yourself, in your body. It can also awaken the chakras of the astral body or it can perform healing from a distance. It also can transform one and make one invisible in times of danger. We have a practice with this arcanum associated with imagination. Because remember in Arcanum 2, we talked about the high priestess, the faculty of imagination. With the first arcanum, we have the card associated with the magician, willpower. And the high priestess is imagination. So Arcanum 11 has a practice associated with imagination because 1 plus 1 equals 2. They call it science. I'll read for you the directions given by Samael Vior, I believe in his book, Alchemy and Kabbalah and the Tarot. The disciple must quiet his mind and emotions while seated in a comfortable chair or while lying down, face up, in a reclining position. Now imagine the marvelous Quetzal bird floating above your head. Mentally vocalize the mantra of power, Parowioa, pronounced like this, The Quetzal's divine image, splendid bird of beautifully intense emerald feathers, golden green plume with a red belly and long green feathers, yet with a white undertail, will come to your imagination with this mantra. The disciple must become familiar with this bird and learn how to handle it. You can awaken your internal powers with this fiery bird. The mantra, Proewa, utilized often by the schools of the great chain, allow us to bring into our cognizant imagination any image from the superior worlds. This is how we can clairvoyantly see. The alchemist must utilize this mantra during the trance state of sexual alchemy or magic in order to see the Quetzal. Any questions? I got quite a few. Um, first one is when a man and a woman are in the sexual act, <clears throat> if they're doing uh, you know, the breathing aspect, the Kriyana, blah, 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 are they actually reversing that orgasm of the spine? Well, um, the tendency, yes. The tendency is that with our breathing, not only during sex, but also throughout the day, we tend to focus more on the exhalation than the inhalation. So Samael and VR mentions in his lectures that we tend to have a centrifugal influence in our breathing and our seminal system, in which the forces flow because of our breath from inside to out in a centrifugal way. But through works of hamsa or pranayama or alchemy, you make that energy centripetal. The force, instead of going inward out, comes from out to in. 
And in that way, you gradually acculturate your body to be able to transmute naturally. Because I know missionaries, one missionary I know, he's been practicing for 30, 40 years. Long time. He says, he tells me, and it's very true, you know, my body naturally transmutes when I walk, when I breathe, because I've trained my body to do that every day. But in the beginning, you have to learn to acclimate your body little by little. So you may begin alchemy with connection, connecting for a minute, two minutes, three minutes, building it up as you learn to control the energy. Because to try to connect for an hour in the beginning is usually not going to be productive because we have so much lust and defects. So this is why Samael and Vior and many initiates emphasize that when you want to begin alchemy, first, couples would train in monasteries by sleeping in the same bed with each other for months without touching. Then they would learn to caress with purity, then to kiss with love. And in the beginning, they may connect for a minute, not, no more than that, usually, because it's very difficult to retrain the body, the donkey of the body, to make those forces flow from out to in instead of into out. So ancient schools of mysteries, those Neptunian schools, before they closed and before they degenerated, or some of them degenerated, they used to have rooms for couples. First, monks and nuns would train separately. And then they would, when they were ready, they would find their partner and begin alchemy. But in the beginning, I would say, acclimate yourself because we have too much lust. It's very tempting to engage for longer because it's very pleasant. It's the natural birthright of the soul, the beauty of the soul. But again, too much fire, too much breathing, too much passionate movement, you lose everything, easy. But little by little, control with the bellows of your lungs. Silent, if your partner is not interested or wants to practice, you do it mentally. But of course it takes willpower. I've heard of people who've done that, but yeah. usually they don't make it public because. Are they led by, like, you know how they say the honey moon where they're led by the angel? Are they being guided? People who have an immaculate conception are guided. Now, to clarify for our listeners, uh, immaculate conception doesn't mean sex, or doesn't mean conception without sex. It means conception through purity. And to conceive with purity means that when husband and wife connect, both Gnostics, they transmute their energies and pray to the Holy Spirit to take one sperm and guide it out of the phallus into the woman to impregnate without orgasm. And there are those who do that, if, they're, if, they're, if they have the karma for it. So, they, so there are people... There are many people, but you know, they don't usually go around saying in the movement, hey, my kid was in Immaculate Conception. Oh. Because you know that there's certain Gnostics and people who, or people who aspire to be Gnostics, who get very jealous. So is that child born with special? In most cases, yeah, because. Is that what this indigo children stuff is? What the New Age movement calls indigo children, is a very repackaged concept of return and recurrence. What is it? So return and recurrence refers to as we said in our lecture on transmigration of souls, 
how certain souls, which have a lot of experience, reincorporate into new bodies. And then they have certain virtuoso skills, which they developed in past lives. Which people, they look at these kids who are playing Mozart at seven, eight, age of seven, and they can't understand how does a child know how to play a piano so well compared to someone who's older, like Arthur Rubinstein, who's very, who's perfect in his skill, but didn't start off at that level. So is it true that they're here to, they're here on purpose at a special time because of the, what's going on in the world to try to raise people's consciousness and all that? There are cases of, of uh, children who are born in this time in order to help some. You don't really find them, a lot of them. And sadly, a lot of these kids are presented with a lot of temptation where they can lose all that power and ability. Somebody else says there are many masters being born in this day and age to help humanity as children. But somebody else says we were worried, me and my missionaries were worried about the prophet Jehovah, the Bodhisattva Jehovah who was born in Latin America. And he said we're keeping an eye out on him because he has a certain mission to fulfill for the White Lodge. But if he does every stupid thing that kids do in these times, he could really hinder the progress of his being. So there are children who are born to help humanity. But there are also many, which is more common, people who are reincorporated into a new life who have certain skills and qualities that they developed in past lives. So that when they sit at the piano, they're playing Chopin, Liszt, Tchaikovsky with ease. And people don't understand, well, how do, they, how do they know how to do that? Well, they did it in their past lives. And so there are many children, there are children being born from chastity. But usually those couples don't announce it to others because, for one thing, it could create problems in the movement. Because there's a lot of people in the Gnostic movement who are the return and recurrence of the fanatics of the times of Jesus. There's people who believe that, yeah. But here's the thing. That would explain... That explains a lot of things. He was a fallen fallen bodhisattva. He took the power from his god, his kaf. He was a malek, obviously. He had a lot of power in his speech. People who have solar bodies can channel energy very powerfully and they influence millions of people to the point that they don't even think, which is what Hitler did. And with Hitler, when his speeches, he was doing the runes. You know, he would do his left hand, he would do the, the How Hitler, which is the rude Kaum. He would do this, How Hitler, and he would do many movements. He would do this, Rune Dorn, because he knew the knowledge from the runes, the Nordic alphabet. But he took all that power. Originally, he was working in a good way before he met the man from Tibet, which was the man with the green gloves, which somebody else says taught him black magic. The man from Tibet. There's a, there's a Tibetan man that was in his group. And that's why... Hitler was very fascinated with the occult. And so he was, if he was a fallen bodhisattva, I, I, I would believe it. I do, I, I do think it is very plausible. I don't know from experience, but it does, explain, it does explain why he was able to influence a whole country to, to commit genocide. Do you think you know? he practiced sexual transmutation? And then... Well, anyone who reaches that power at that level, who's a, anyone who is a malek, who becomes a king, creates solar bodies, worked in alchemy. Maybe in past lives, maybe in the beginning, but then somebody else said he met a man from Tibet who taught him black sexual alchemy, and then he deviated. So what happened with, happens with many people is that they start elevating the power of kaf in their head, 
developing the powers of persuasion, of conscious knowledge. But then the black magicians come after you and try to coerce you into the knowledge. Right. They kind of look, they look down on you, they, you know, they try to snap at you and stuff. And then I'm trying to help them by saying, because I could tell that they're not um, confident, and you know, you want to bring them into this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And how do you differentiate? So I try to use flatter, I try to flatter them and say, you know, you should you know, not be proud of yourself, but you know, try to have more confidence and you know, try this, try that. How do you determine, how do you separate coercion from? That's a really good question. It's meditation. Just keep, I keep telling them to meditate. Well, first, meditate yourself. Meditate because to really help someone want to follow the path you're following, you got to show them by example. Because, right. you know, as much as I may talk about you know certain things, you know, if I'm teaching you certain things, it's because I experienced it. You know, I, I try to leave out things I don't know because that's not going to help. But things that you know from experience that you really benefited give you confidence because you know, hey, runes helped me, these practices. And when you speak from your heart that these things really helped you, people they are more, see that. they see it and they light up and they say, okay, I want to try that because you're excited and you naturally know the benefit. So with knowledge and comprehension is how you teach others. Yeah. He wanted to know what I was doing, and I showed this to him. Now he's listening to some of your, uh, you know, talks. Uh, I, did you have questions? I'm taking. No, over. that's all right. Go ahead. Um, so when I was in my dark phase before I met you, and I was partying and this and that, I used to have sleep paralysis. Sure. Where I used to have things on my chest, an old hag, a yeah. reptilian being trying to choke me. Is that what is? What was that? Tends to be, in most cases. But there will come a time when you're working with transmutation, when you illuminate your cuff, your crown, and then, because you're developing light in your pumpkin gourd, cleaning your mind out, then all the ghouls and goblins of Halloween come after you. Those tend to be your own, own mind, but also the demons of the Black Lodge, they come after you. And they, you know, personally, I'm fighting them all the time. And, but it's good in the sense that if they're coming after you, it's because you're doing something right. So, uh, I don't know. When they were coming after me, it was during my party. Well, you're seeing, maybe you're, maybe you're seeing, uh, you might have been, might have been seeing your own ego. Yeah, sure. and, at that, and at that point, to have a hag on your chest, a hag is, a, for those who don't know, a hag is a witch, female lustful ego, which they in certain cosmogenies or better traditions, they lay down on the chest to steal one's breath. Yeah, that's what happens. So your being could be showing you that you got a big hag, your big lust is sucking your energy dry. Because I remember from my earlier years in life that I, even when I was a fornicator, my being came to me in experiences and was warning me. But I didn't have anyone to tell me what, what was I going through. So they warned me, my being warned me, you're fallen and you're going to fall more 
if you keep associating with these people, I'm like, oh, it's an interesting dream. And they're like, you missed the point. And then, I, and then it took years of studying and practicing to realize that I really wanted to have those experiences again. And then I started practicing astral projection exercises. And then by being confirmed that, yeah, I've been knocking on your door for your whole childhood and you haven't listened to me, but now you're listening, so I'm going to teach you. Yeah. I see mine come out. Would you say it's better to just surround myself with people that don't have a lot of ego? Well, in the beginning, why give ourselves hardship? Yeah. Your inner, your inner being, your God, as well as your inner Lucifer will give that for you. Especially when you don't want it. But there are times in the path of an initiate near the end in which a lot of ego, most of the ego is dead, but certain bodhisattvas must get themselves into situations to provoke them so that they can discover defects they didn't have. So this happened with Samayan Vior where he said, I've been meditating on my ego at that time. I'm very clean, but I'm, I need people to provoke my anger, to find it. So he would meet people who didn't like him and go out of his way to get troubles because he was at that level. Personally, in most cases, for most people, we want to avoid problems because we're not strong enough to at that level it's like well he's a he's the general of Mars warrior of Mars able to able to handle that what, what about like situations I had over Christmas break with uh, family members um, I noticed myself uh, you know not, nothing big but just saying something maybe sarcastically I used to be very sarcastic as a person I'm trying to cut that down and then like two minutes later I just realized yeah. Do I, do I, is there a certain uh, chant or prayer that I can quickly say, you know, I don't want to just make it worse by going up to that person and being like, sorry for what I said. Is there like a certain thing that I can do or just, or just be self-reflective? Is that, is that the key? Protect your mind with mantra, like uh, the mantra for the pentagram. Plim Krishnaya Govindaya Gopijana, Balabaya, Swaha. Repeat it mentally. When you're with people. In the beginning, it's hard because usually our mind is distracted and you're trying to talk with people and you want to do a mantra in your mind. After a lot of training, you can, you can do it with ease, but it takes time. But personally, if I find that my mind, if I sense my mind getting negative when I'm with my clients at work, I do that mantra. I pray. I even do it. I whisper it when I'm walking around my office or among my, my clients who I work with. And I do that prayer. Klim Krishnaya Govindaya Gobijana Balabaya Swaha Repeat again and again and again and again. So I, you bring in the light of energy of Christ in your mind, your heart, forming the pentagram so that you can reject your own negativity. So that when you get into a conversation with a coworker or whomever, 
you can have foresight rather than hindsight. But not having hindsight at all means that we're, we have no remorse. Well, that's, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic. I'm not, obviously not anymore, but we have that guilt. So is there something like yeah, that? Guilt, yeah, guilt, guilt is an ego. Catholic ego that says, I need to be Christian. This is why Nietzsche made fun of the Catholics so much. He says, they think that their virtue is about being bawled over, run over, and saying sorry to the person who hit them. Right. Or thinking that their virtue is like a, a break, as they're go, as a, like a cart going on a hill. They think that remorse, or better said, their, their religion is like, a, their virtue is like a break, which they try to stop themselves from descending. But, you know, he makes a lot of fun of them, and it, he rightfully so, because it's stupid to think that way. And then you do the mantra, Klim, Krishnaya, Govindaya, Gobijana, Balabaya, Swaha, repeat, sing it. Do you think we should go up to that person and apologize or just let it go? It depends. Follow your heart. Your heart is going to tell you what's right, what's wrong. There's a lot of there's a lot of them who are awake. Kubrick's last movie, Eyes Wide Shut. They finished. I believe they finished the day he died. It was right after the, the like ten days or so after he finished filming or something like that. And in that movie, you see a literal initiation into the Black Lodge, the force of coercion. But um, you know, there's a final lines in that movie with Tom Cruise and his former was a former wife, whatever. Uh, Nicole Kidman, she says, because we're awake now, we're in hell. Path of demons. So a lot of those actors and actresses are awake in hell. It's very common. And what's your definition of awakened? Awakened is when you know. You can know as a consciousness free of condition, but if you're awakened as an ego, meaning you're, you as a consciousness are awake, like in the astral plane, as, a, as an ego. You see through your ego. Instead of being awake consciously, you're awake in the darkness, in the shadows, in a very heavy way. Because you may have experiences where certain witches and sorcerers come after you, and they awake, they, because you have that ego, they can manipulate, they go for your solar plexus to take your consciousness and awaken you down in hell. Being awake in the ego is like seeing in the dark. Whereas before you couldn't see, it's just darkness. Your consciousness, you see in the dark, you, you don't see anything. But when you're awake as an ego, it's like being a bat in the darkness or being, a, being awake in the shadows. You, you simply know. You have powers in the ego. You can tell, read, mind, read minds, but it's all egotistical. It's demonic. It's all in hell. Oh, okay, so that's what you mean by awake. Yeah. So, but there's two ways to awaken. As we said in our course on Sufism, there's two ways to awaken. By eliminating ego so that you see clearly without obstruction or you see like a murky bottle in the bottle, in the glass. You see through the shadows but it's a subjective and painful way. And 
demons will try to grab your solar plexus, which is why when we conjure, cover your abdomen, make the sign of the pentagram and conjure them. Because they can't take your energies if you're covering them. They usually go for your sexual organs or your abdomen to try to pull you, awaken you in the, in the darkness. It's a very evil, evil path. And I don't recommend it for anybody. And, the, and the basically, there's deadly sins that are feeding the demons. And that's what it means to be awakened in hell. You, you have power in your, in your anger. You can astral project and gin travel in the dark or in the shadows and manipulate people and read minds. But it's all in hell. So you're doing it through the ego of other people to manipulate them. That's coercion. Persuasion is different. Persuasion is you see the light, you act in the light, but you respect the will of other people. A demon will always force itself upon you. I'll tell you an example. I gave a lecture a number of years ago at a library. I had a couple come in. Amongst, there was about 15 people who showed up. Introductory course. And one guy come with his wife who I, who I immediately knew just talking with him. He was trouble. Because he was, I sensed him, sensed his, he asked me questions and trying to impress with his knowledge and was, you know, I became more awake and awake and awake in my consciousness. And I saw, he was awake as a demon and he was telepathically trying to play with me, steal my energy, trying to manipulate what I was going to say. He even said physically out loud, I know what you're going to say next. He, said, he, he had the audacity to say it out loud. And I just ignored him. I kept giving my lecture. And, but they're very common. And so he was trying to coerce me into following his way. He's saying, aha, I'm, I beat you. I'm conjuring you. Follow my path because it's, you know, the path of Christ that you're following is wrong. That's how demons think. They try to force you, coerce you. But no solar man will do that. The solar initiates respect the will of others. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.